Welcome to Sam Watches Star Trek, Monkey Off My Backlog's second weekly podcast where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam. Oh, come on, you gotta do better than that. That's the most lackluster con I've ever heard. That's better, that's better. You really gotta lean into the Shatner of it. I would not recommend that anyone lean into the Shatner. <laughs> this week, as Sam has already alluded to, we are discussing what is widely considered to be the best Star Trek film, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Released on June 4th, 1982, this was a summer movie. The film was directed by Nicholas Meyer and written by Harv Bennett and Jack B. Sowards. This was the first... Star Trek film episode thing that Gene Roddenberry's input was generally ignored by the creative team. He was present. They just didn't take any of his advice. Right. Can we can we talk about how the best, quote unquote, best Star Trek, the Trek, the actual Trek, right? Because we're doing a thing, right? We're taking a journey, was done without the show's creator and the exigence for the Trek itself is a Kirk screw-up. Yeah. The best Star Trek is the result of Captain Kirk screwing something up, which is really on brand. It is really on brand. I will say, though, this is based on the episode Space Seed from the first season. We haven't discussed that because we didn't. We weren't doing this podcast when we were watching but the first season. But we watched season, it. But we did watch it. So we're going to probably talk about that a little bit. So this is based on Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek. It just, as a film, doesn't have much of his input. I like that you think I'm going to remember that episode. <laughs> That's why we're doing this. I don't, I'm not going to remember it. You're going to like listen to these when you're 80 and be like, oh, yeah. 80, 18 months from now, whichever. <laughs> whichever comes first. It's like eternal sunshine up here. Two years from now, I could watch this movie again for the first time, for the third time. This is also the first film to use computer-generated effects alongside the practical effects that they had been using for most of the original series and the first film. And the music was done by a then 28-year-old unknown composer, James Horner. I just want to go back to the the effects thing. You can see, so especially in Empire and and Jedi, you can see it a little bit in Star Wars, but they were relying so much on practical models and and that that kind of work. But in the later two movies, before they were cleaned up for the special edition, you can see uh, artifacting around. So you'd see like a like an X wing or a star destroyer and it would be like generally like a circle around it but like you know you're cutting it out of construction paper and you're not that good and this the the space is slightly brighter like they don't match the brightness that's what i saw in this movie like i could see that they were copycatting what they had seen probably more so in empire than star wars we're going to talk about empire for sure but they're still doing the practical effects. A lot of this is still in line with what they were doing in the show and in the first film. But especially the Genesis sequences, they were relying also on computer generated. Right. And this, this looks much better than anything Star Trek has done. Nicholas Meyer hired a lot of really good special effects people, which we're going to talk about as well. But first things first, short summary. Do I even need to summarize this film? I feel like anyone listening okay. to this already knows I what got this it. film is can, about. Can I do it? Yeah. Can I do it? Yeah. All and right. then I'll read mine. We'll see how close okay. they are. We'll race some. All right. Years ago, Kirk messed up and abandoned somebody to die. Yeah, he didn't technically know that, but he knew. In his heart, he knew. So years later, they happen upon this, what they think is deserted planet that this Project Genesis might work on. But it's actually not the planet they thought. It's the planet next door that got blown out of its orbit. And everybody died except for Khan and his friends, who Kirk marooned there years ago. And now they're angry. They take over a starship. 
So they, they do the pirate thing, and, and then he goes after Kirk because he's so mad at him, he must have his revenge. And then Genesis thing. Who cares? Yeah, this is actually really close to what I had written. So Do you have who cares in there? No, I don't have who cares in there. I have something a little snappier. While on a mission to find a planet devoid of life in order to test a terraforming prototype, the captain of the starship Reliant and his first officer Chekhov are captured by Superman and dictator Khan Noonien Singh. Wait, did you just say Superman's in this movie? Captured by Superman and dictator Khan Noonien Singh. Khan, obsessed with revenge against Kirk for marooning him and his followers, embarks on a plan to destroy the Enterprise and steal the terraforming prototype in order to use it as a weapon. It's I don't care what you say. It sounds like you said Superman and Khan. You said, what is it, Superman? Superman and, and dictator, Khan Noonien Singh. Right, Superman and a dictator oh who's God. named Khan. That's no. what I heard. No. And I would watch that movie. Would watch that movie, I would huh? watch that movie. It's oh wait, I already saw it. It's it's uh, the first part of Justice League. Oh, uh, it's up to Kirk and the Enterprise crew, both old and new, to battle Khan and save the galaxy, but at great cost of one of their own. Dun dun dun. Whatever, there's spoilers. Spock dies. Um, I mean, the third movie's called The Search for Spock, right? Not that they knew that at the time. Well, we'll talk about what they knew and what they didn't. Well, know I mean, as well. people went to the theater. Right. But before we get there, first reactions to this film. You already said that it was much better looking than the previous film. Yeah. Is this is one of the few films that you'd actually seen before? How did you feel about it this time? Still good. Do you have more emotional attachment to it now? No. <laughs> Are you going to give me anything really? Tessa's looking at me. She's not a she's not happy. No, I don't have any more emotional. I mean, it's when you have the the backup of the movie, it it clearly is honoring the tradition of Star Trek. Well, much more than the first movie. I mean, so that that's the most important thing for me. It's probably really the only important thing. I mean, there is of course the giant continuity error. Chekhov wasn't in the first season, and so we had to immediately headcanon this and be like, well, he was part of the lower deck. I think that what we're supposed to think is that he was lower decks or maybe like the night shift on the bridge crew or something like that. Yeah. Because he remembers the events of Space Seed, even though that character does not appear in Space Seed. Right. Which, I mean, like, and granted, we've talked about this before. We're not watching all of the episodes. We're watching movies now, but we're not watching all the episodes. I'm never going to have the same level of investment that you have, and I don't need to. So I'm never going to be, you know, the person who knows the lore. I'm just not. But I, I caught that. Yeah, and I love that Chekhov is familiar enough with what went down to, one, give us a quick summary, right? Because he tells his captain, Terrell, what happened. Like, yeah. you were his guest and you tried to take over the ship. And then also he immediately knew what the Botany Bay was because when they come into the place and they're like, oh, somebody's living here. And then they turn around and they see the botany bay on the side and he's like we have to get out of here right now yeah so it you know except for the fact that later on khan's like i remember you i never forget a face (laughs) even the ones you've never seen before but before that i could have been okay with Chekhov knowing about it because you really have to figure one of the hot canteen topics is ranking kirk's all-time screw-ups and so, like, you know, Chekhov's doing it, and everybody's like, no, 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 man, let me tell you about Khan. Let's talk about Khan, right? So, like, he would have obviously known that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how we account for remembering a face you've never seen before, but okay. It doesn't matter. Ricardo Maltabon, who plays Khan, sells everything in this movie. Oh, yeah, He sure. could literally be reading out of the phone book. Including and- that outfit. Yeah, including the outfit. We we have to talk that about is, the outfit. That is that is that has got to be like and I've seen Jennifer Lopez at the Oscars. This has to be one of the most perilous use of breast tape ever. <laughs> he looks good. I mean the the nipple doesn't even slip out till the end. Yeah. Props. Props to, to him. the costume folk to the costumers. Ricardo Maltabon played 
Khan in the original episode Space Seed. So this is obviously an older version of That's Khan. That's cool. Yeah. That's really neat. I have nothing to say. About yeah, it. It's neat. You it's just great. think it's Good neat. Job. Okay. All right. So let's talk about his performance. How do you feel about this character? He gets another shot at the character. How do you feel about his second take on this character? It's an extended take as well because obviously we get to see less of him in the original because it's a shorter episode. Okay. First, I just want to point out that we have talked about the two stars of Fantasy Island now. We talked about Hervey when we were talking about James Bond. Now we've got the the other guy, the boss, the one who the plane is being pointed out to. And so I never watched that show. So, I mean, that's his most prominent role outside of Khan. So this is the only thing I've ever seen him in is my, my point to you. He's a great villain, great embodiment of this. You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you're, you're never going to stand up to Vader, right? He's going to always be the ultimate space villain, no matter what the prequels tried to do. To Khan? I don't know. I, we could have an argument for, for number two villain. And I think that his performance, I think the thing that Nicholas Meyer does best, I think Nicholas Meyer made a great film. Like, even setting aside the performances, this is just a very well done film. He gives us room to breathe in this performance. I love the shot at the beginning when they're establishing Khan and Chekhov and and Terrell, the captain of the Reliant, R.I.P. Terrell, doesn't last very long kneeling before him and he's just pulling off the gloves and you just see oh, just the one glove because he keeps the other one on the whole time yeah but he michael jackson style yeah this is this is yeah this so is some thriller stuff here yeah so he pulls off the glove it's just it, it gives us these long shots of him that allow us to just sort of be in his head space so there's okay first of all if you are a captain and your name is not kirk and Kirk is anywhere near or has anything to do with anything you're going to be experiencing, run the other way. We learned that from the first movie. We learned it from this movie. He is bad news for everybody else. But I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. So as I said, we had a good, you know, a good discussion about whether or not Khan is the number two space villain of all time. I immediately thought of something I want to ask you. The Borg. I hear that the Borg are like the best villain ever in Star Trek. Are they? I can't comment on that until you see the Borg. Until we can talk about them. Yes, you can say yes or no. this This is hard for me because I saw the Borg as a child. I saw TNG as a child before I saw TOS or the films. And the Borg are the stuff of childhood nightmares for me. So it's very hard for me to untangle that from like a honest evaluation. If we're talking about menacing, con. Sure. If we're talking about inevitability, mm. Borg. Well, and plus Captain Kirk didn't temporarily go over to Khan's side. I often wonder what Kirk's reaction would have been to the Borg. We can talk about that when we get there. I think it would have been different than Picard's. So you remember Rick and Morty when when uh, Rick has the affair with the hive mind? Yeah, <laughs> Unity. So, I love Unity. So there you go. There you go. There that's, you, that's, that's the whole that's thing. That's it. That's what they did. So when we talk about Khan, one of the things we also have to talk about is his motivation. So he is obsessed with the idea of destroying Kirk with regaining his power, right? Because the whole history of Khan is that he and his buddies, his jazzercise clothes-wearing buddies. How do you know what jazzercise is? I, I pay attention. Okay. They were genetically engineered to be supermen, to be dictators, to lead armies, to be in control, right? And they were banished because they were too powerful. And that's where the whole Botany Bay thing comes from. And he sees this not only as his chance to destroy Kirk and to escape his captivity, but also to gain a weapon in order to fulfill his what he sees as his destiny. Those are all the reasons that were given. However, the way that this character performs his 
monologue about his motivations, it almost sounds like he's more mad at Kirk for not checking on him for 17 years. It's it's true. Then he is even about being exiled. He's like, no, I get that. I totally understand. Well, that totally makes sense. I'm evil. Yeah. But But he's mad that Kirk doesn't think about him the same way that he thinks about Kirk. What do you think about that? Oh, man. This guy is a Taylor Swift song waiting to happen. Okay, I've got two things for this. Yeah. Right? So the first thing is, you know, Captain Kirk and Ethan Hunt are members of a very distinctive club, right? <laughs> I know exactly what you're yeah. going to say. Yeah. No, that's it. That was that was the thing. Okay. If you If you are somebody who's seen the most recent Mission Impossible movie, that is the plot of the movie. It's basically the same movie. Yeah. And so um, the other thing, though, is I just want to point out here that back in the, I, I, you know, we talk about the good old days, right? We talk about the 60s and the 80s. and But I'll tell you, in the 60s and the 80s, it was like, oh, look, there's an ideology that we should raise supermen who are pure and ready to do just this stuff. And it's like, wait, that's bad. Like, everybody's like, oh, that's going to be a bad guy. That's not going to work. We have to, like, get rid of that. That won't work. I mean, it's 2022, and we don't think that anymore as a society. So I I yearn for somebody like Khan being being like, no, we can't have that. Well, actually, there is a modern eugenics movement that believes that we can use genetics to make better people. They don't think they should be engineered by the government. They think it should be, like, an individual choice. But that is still a thing that exists I, in genetic science. Right. And and I mean, like, in, in popular culture, until recently, we would be like, nope, nothing good's going to happen from that. Yeah. But now we're like, but on the other hand. So quickly. So quickly goes so bad. So quickly fast. goes bad. The last thing I'll say about Khan, I'm sure we'll we'll circle back to him since this is movie's all about him. You mentioned his wonderful costume, his wonderful chest-bearing, ab-bearing costume. I mean. I love that this dude is so dramatic. Like, he needs the perfect lighting, the perfect costume, that he takes the time out of his busy revenge schedule to take a Starfleet insignia from a dead Starfleet officer on the Reliant and make a necklace out of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, the outfit... I mean, let, let's be honest here. Like, the objectification of Khan's body comes in at a 11, <laughs> right? I mean, like, all I'm saying is, if this movie, if, if we were talking about, quote-unquote, female-presenting nipples here, even though they don't show up till the very end of the movie... This movie would have not passed muster with the MPAA. This would have been rated X just because it's like, come on, man. We're supposed to look at something else. (laughs) His eyes are up here, people. His eyes are up here. I don't think he wants you to look at his eyes. I think he wants you to. When you dress like that, oh, no, I can say that because it's con. (laughs) And that's how he really feels. The other thing I have to mention before we get to the old crew is that is Myers take on Star Trek because he came in with a very specific idea of what he wanted this film to be. He takes a turn in this film towards certain elements of Trek that were there before, but weren't really emphasized by Gene Roddenberry. He specifically said that he wanted this film to be more of a naval adventure. He cites Horatio Hornblower as one of his inspirations. And Moby Dick is of course quoted throughout this entire film. That's that's actually really that works out really well because the first Star Trek movie was also a naval adventure, naval gazing. <laughs> Different naval. Yep. And what a difference a letter makes. Yeah. Go what on. a difference. So I'm curious because we can especially see this in the Moby Dick references. Uh, it's those are all over this. In fact, Moby Dick is one of the three books that we can see in the Botany Bay converted shuttle thing that Khan has been hiding out in. And he makes many references to Moby Dick. Kirk is his white whale, right? He spits yeah. at he as he spits at him from hell itself, you know, all of this stuff. And I noticed it this time after actually like paying attention to the the imagery of this film. You even see the Enterprise when it is rising below Khan because it's very like, oh, he's thinking, you know, two-dimensionally instead of three-dimensionally. Mm-hmm. It looks like a white whale. 
Yeah. So what do you think about all the naval, like making this more into an adventure, going to see sea battles, but in space? Okay. Theme of today is I have two things. So the first one is no disrespect to Moby Dick, but Captain Kirk is way more fabulous than you. Oh, yeah. 100%. Now, I'm not, I mean, like, far be it from me to objectify a whale. <laughs> I don't want it to come across that way. But now, of course, Khan is like 20,000 leagues <laughs> more <laughs> fabulous than Kirk is. So anyway, okay, so the second thing is, okay, so I think that the best way to talk about tone in Star Trek is to, to draw a boundary. And there are two boundaries. The, the Star Trek range of acceptable storytelling is a line segment. It has two very clear endpoints that have been established. It should not be surprising to you that the first movie is one of those endpoints. Like if you get too close to that or you go past it, you're not doing Star Trek. You're doing Kubrick. Nobody should do Kubrick. Most of the time, not even him. <laughs> Sometimes him, but never anybody else. On the other side, and we didn't have it yet at this point, but we, we do now. We have the benefit. You know what the other end point is, right? Abrams. Right. Right? The, 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 All action, no introspection. Yeah, the, the, the zip-bang lens flare. Mm-hmm. Star Trek. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And so that's that's the other side. You cannot go farther than that because you're not doing Star Trek. You're doing you're doing my movie now. You know, mm-hmm. except he shouldn't allowed be allowed to do my movie. Apparently, this is a Star Trek podcast, not a Star Wars podcast. You know, the other thing is I don't want to have too much emotional attachment to Star Trek because nobody can ruin it for me. No one can hurt me. That's right. <laughs> So yeah, as long as you, yeah, my point was, this fits, this is, you asked me what I thought about this. It was very fun because it was right there in the middle. And as you point out, because largely probably because Roddenberry wasn't involved. And uh, as we've talked about previously, the actors did not have a, a, a strong hand. I mean, they would from this point forward, apparently, but this was like under new management. And unlike the first motion picture, the director read the prompt, understood what Star Trek was, wasn't trying to make something else, and did a really good job. He So Gene Roddenberry did not like this take on Star Trek. He was very concerned about the, milita- the military aspect of it that Meyer was leaning into because of the whole naval adventure thing. Meyer specifically said he didn't know why people kept trying to take Star Trek so seriously. And because because to him it was good, but it wasn't something that needed to be like Kubrick. It didn't need an extra layer. It doesn't. It didn't need an extra layer of philosophy, according to him. It just needed good character work, which is what we get in this film. Yeah, and and that would be problematic if the story wasn't good. Right. The the point is, and this is what I think Paramount is really trying to say right now in 2022, is that there is room in the universe of Star Trek to tell all kinds of different stories. And so they're going to tell like 27 of them at the same time. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think y'all are down for it. Right. So, but this is an example. And, and, but I do get the complaint though, right? If you have somebody making Star Trek movies who says, I don't need philosophy. Well, you're obviously not doing Star Trek, the motion picture, but you might be doing JJ Abrams. Right. Right. And so like that could go horribly wrong. Because Star Trek is grounded in a philosophy. I just think that Nicholas Meyer in this film leans more towards literary than he does philosophical. Well, and that's fine. And it works well, I for mean, this film. But that it's like Star Wars. Mm-hmm. You There are boundaries around the Star Wars universe as well. They're different boundaries. But the fact is, there is room enough in that universe to tell many different kinds of stories by many different people. But you can't go too far off of, mixing metaphors, the prime directive. Right. The, so the other two books that we see in the Botany Bay wreckage on SETI Alpha 5 is, like I said, Moby Dick, but it's also King Lear in the Holy Bible. 
the biblical references are obvious because of Genesis and the whole Garden yeah. of Eden of creating a new world, et cetera, et cetera. The King Lear thing was interesting to me because Nicholas Meyer says that this movie is about friendship, old age, and death. I mean, a, a, a crazy old man is abandoned and gets mad about it. Mm-hmm. And he's what there. He, I just described both movie and play at the same time. And he was a king, sure. Once, right, right. I just think that that's really interesting. A lot of people have also tried to read this along the lines of Paradise Lost. You can. I, I don't mean, know if there's a direct reference here, but I don't like that one because I mean, you think about Lucifer, right? Mm-hmm. And the TV show, right? The whole point about Lucifer is he's lovable. Mm-hmm. There's a reason, you know, the story is so tragic because he was God's favorite, right? And and that's why God was so hard on him. That doesn't map onto this at all. Right. Like, it, yeah, superficially, sure, but it doesn't work. It doesn't really I, work. I don't know that King Lear works that well either, but it certainly works better than Paradise Lost. I just think that's interesting that he chooses, instead of doing this whole thing where it's like, we're going to think about the universe and think about beings other than humans and utopia, he goes specifically for character work via literary allusion and reference. Well, this is is perhaps what's better known as the, the Carl Sagan method, where we realize that we do not have to look into space to see the unknown. We just need to look farther inward. And so, you know, what Star Trek has always been is that that's what utopian fiction does that's what science fiction does at their best is imagine a different world so that we can better understand our world carl sagan was really big on the idea that in order to understand ourselves we have to look inward you don't just look at the situation today and put it through the frame of science fiction understand it you have to be willing to do introspection through the metaphor of space. It, that's contact. If if that's the easiest point of reference, the yeah. uh, the book and then the Jodie Foster movie. So before I, I move on, one last thing that I want to talk about in terms of Meyer's contribution to this series. This is something that I think you were very interested in. He, of course, immediately wanted to throw out the uniforms and the costumes of the motion picture, which and makes sense. why wouldn't you? Would it surprise you to know that the costumes that they're wearing are actually the costumes from the first film. They didn't have a budget to start completely from scratch. So the costumes look the way they do because Nicholas Meyer thought that the dark red dye that they used looked good against the background. And that was like the best. Like they, he tried a few different colors and the red dye was the one that the old costumes took to I the mean, best. I mean, this is what every high school and you know, small college theater person is done. They look at what you have that was abandoned from when whoever had money made poor choices. And now you with a good aesthetic taste has like $5 to spend. So you go through and you go, oh, wait, that'll work. If I just do this, this, and this. I mean, that's what theater people do. We're going to do this, this, and this and add a mock neck. Mock turtle necks. I mean, it worked for the Beatles. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he also said that he liked the idea of having like the fate, like the the darker faded colors, because he saw it as more of like what he called a corrupt color scheme versus the original bright colors of the original series. Mm. All right, let's talk about the people we're all here to talk about. Spock. Well, we're going to talk about him. No. We see the three original, the the three amigos at the beginning of this movie, along with. Sulu, Uhura, and Scotty during what appears to be a training exercise with new cadet Savic. Mm-hmm. It turns out that this is actually a test, a simulation of mm-hmm. what they call the Kobayashi Maru, which is famous in Star Trek. This is the first time that we're going to see it, hear about it. It's going to come up again and again as we go through this series. What do you think about the Kobayashi Maru? Okay, I had two things for this until you asked me about the Kobayashi Maru. It's Schrodinger's neutral zone. That is apparently, from what I saw, my understanding of what the Kobayashi Maru is. It's unsolvable because you don't know what's there until you go there. But if you choose not to go there, there are ramifications. And there are almost surely ramifications if you do it, unless there aren't. But you don't know. 
Right. 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 I mean that 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 is what that is my understanding of it based on this. Now let me backtrack to the two things I had a second ago. Head cannon. This is so after Diane and Sam, you know, kind of break up, and you know, so Diane's gone and Sam Malone is by himself. Somebody fresh out of Starfleet joins him to run Cheers. <laughs> I. I <laughs> I don't know. The real question here is who do you pick? Captain Kirk or Sam Malone? I'll leave you with that for now. The other thing, you called those three the three amigos. Yes. Now, I know you've never seen the three amigos or the actual those three people in the room at the same time, but you are familiar Having seen only murders in the building, you are familiar with two of them playing off of each other. That is and true. And you've seen Community. Yes. So Steve Martin is Kirk, right? Yes. Okay. 100%. All right. Tell me about Martin Short and Chevy Chase. How, which ones? <laughs> I mean, Martin Short has to be McCoy. So that leaves Chevy Chase as Spock. Chevy Chase is Spock. I mean, none of them yeah, are really I want Spock, you to just but... sit with that for a while. Uh... I want you to sit with the choices you have made. Moving past that, I I want to talk to you about Savick as a character, but Savick is so annoyed that the Kobayashi Maru is unwinnable. She keeps asking Spock well, and Kirk about it. She is like, no, she's clearly that student that has to pass everything, has to like excel at everything. And so she is like, careful, incensed careful. <laughs> that this is a par- apparently an unwinnable situation, right? And both Spock and Kirk tell her the whole point is that you're supposed to face death as a command, like as someone who wants to be in command, you have to know that there's these unwinnable situations. It's a test to see how you react in the face of that. But then she finds out that Kirk yeah. actually is the only person to pass the Kobayashi Maru test. He took it three times and passed it on his third time. And then she finds out it's because he cheated. Right. Which is apparently like Starfleet thought that was funny, I guess. And that's why he like passed it. But he's legendary because he did this. And when she asks him, he says, it's because I don't believe in the no-win situation. Which, I mean, if we've been following Kirk at all up to this point, is not surprising. What do you think of his solution? It's ironic. Yeah, and and first of all, I just I want you to know that if I do stat camp or coding camp, this is what I look like when I'm an actual student. Okay, <laughs> like it's not fun. It's it's I'm not a good person to be around. Yeah, so I mean, the other thing about Savic is I totally get the idea of like it's fine if you can't win. Okay, that's that's okay. I'm gonna sit with that for a while. I've I had a calculus teacher in high school who gave us character building questions at the end of a test. It's like, okay, you can do this. Now I'm going to give you a problem with like three steps further down the road. Now we haven't studied this and there's no possible way you would know, but it builds character. I've been hazed academically in this particular way before and I'm, <laughs> I'm okay with it because everybody else around me didn't get it either. Right. That's okay. What Kirk did is not okay. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say that. It's not okay. But he doesn't believe in the no-win situation. It's fundamentally against the way he views the universe. Well, fine. Good for him. The universe doesn't work that way, Con. <laughs> Again, ironic, because he thinks this, and we're like, oh, look, you've never had any Con. Oh, wait, what just happened? Your best friend's dead. Oh, sad. So... Kirk, at the beginning of this, just like in the last movie, they've all kind of been split apart again. Spock is in charge of the Enterprise. He's captain, but he makes it very clear he's only captain because he's training this group of cadets. Like, he's captain in the sense that, like, he doesn't want to go on a mission on the Enterprise as its captain. He wants to train these cadets to be Starfleet officers. Kirk, who is an admiral still, despite him demoting himself in the last film. Yep. He's there to I don't do think a the checkup. First, I don't think the first movie happened. You think this is actually I, I, no, a re- retcon? It's <laughs> retcon. <laughs> um, I don't think it's a retcon. The, the convenient thing about the Star Trek universe from what I've seen is you can pretty much ignore anything that's happened at any given time because it won't disrupt the continuity. There are very few things are exempt from that. 
Also, I just thought of something, by the way. So, like, I, I want to take the Jessica Day approach to renaming this movie. Star Trek Two: Captain Kirk's Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So Captain Kirk, or Admiral Kirk, shows up to the Enterprise, and that's the whole point of him being there to watch this test and to, like, review the cadets and what's been going on with them and... And, you know, see that they're okay. And we get to meet Scotty's nephew, who was like a young, fresh-faced cadet. It's also Kirk's birthday. (laughs) We're not told what birthday it is, but it is his birthday. Well, And And he's not feeling great about it. It's the you need reading glasses birthday, so congratulations. He's over 40. Yeah, so, and you know that Spock and McCoy, like, planned him. Like, this is a group gift, even though they come at different times and give it to him at different times. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think it's a group gift. That's just how in sync they are. (laughs) Because Spock gives him another literary reference, another big deal on this side of the Kirk-Con divide. A Tale of Two Cities, which is supposed to foreshadow his death because Sydney dies at the end of Tale of Two Cities. And then McCoy gets him the pair of reading glasses because he can't, he's allergic to the medication that would fix the problem that <laughs> yeah. they've. So we get to see Kirk peering over reading glasses at various points in the movie in yeah. what is obviously yeah. Nicholas Meyer's attempt to inject humor into right. this franchise. It's wonderful. I think it works well. Although, if it was a group gift, I can already imagine the conversation. Because they're trying to figure out what to get him. And Bones is like, they finally settle on Dickens. Like, I, Bones is the one who figures out Dickens. And he's like, I don't, I mean, like, Dickens wrote a lot, though. I mean, which one would she get? And, and Spock says, well, it's logical. What's the most basic white girl Dickens book? <laughs> and Great Expectations wasn't available. Tale of of Two Cities is also, it is about a no-win situation. Sure. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense that- Being French? (laughs) Sure, sure. But it it does actually make sense. Or is it being English? It's being the body double of the man that the person you love loves. I just want to point out that being American clearly is not the high ground at the moment. Anyway- Anyway, We're just going to skip all the way past that. So just like in the first movie, the thread here for Kirk is he's dealing with getting older. He's dealing with being promoted out of the position that he feels the most himself in, right? He can no longer just go running around the galaxy sleeping with whoever he wants. (laughs) Or at least he thinks that he can't. I don't know. And of course, as I've said before, this is a meditation on old age and like being the best, but like not being in a position where you can show that off anymore. He's having a midlife crisis. Yeah. Do you think that this film tackles that better than the last film? Well, it tackles everything better than the last film, except for copying Kubrick. I guess the first movie did that best. Maybe that's the sur- <laughs> that that's clearly the superlative for the first movie, best Kubrick ripoff. But that's not a that's not the prize you want to win. So then we also have Spock, who, as I said, is a captain of the Enterprise only as a training exercise. And in fact, when Kirk wants to take over the Enterprise because of the issue with the Genesis Project, which only he knows about, and he has to explain it to Spock and McCoy, he is like, "Are you sure it's okay?" And Spock is like, "I don't want to be captain." I'm only doing this to train these kids. Obviously, you should be the captain. Yeah. No ego. Spock has no ego. In fact, I think he even says that. He's like, you're assuming I have an ego. And right. I don't. He's, he's the super ego. He's the super ego. I love, love, love the relationship between Spock and Savick, and then the development of the relationship between Savick and Kirk because... As has been said on Twitter before, this is an elderly gay couple mentoring a young lesbian. Like, there's a lot of those vibes here. She often comes to Spock in this film to ask him about human emotions. She is Vulcan. It's not actually mentioned in the film. In the script, it indicates that she is of Vulcan and Romulan heritage. And that's supposed to be why she cries at the end when Spock dies. And so, like, I mean, we can also talk about the fact that he was her mentor and all of that. But apparently Nicholas Meyer was questioned about that. And he says, no, like, that's that's their relationship. She has to cry, like, when he dies. So what did you think about Savick and Spock's relationship and Spock as, like, a mentor to all of these recruits? We've never seen him in this role before. I was thinking before you moved over to this subject. I've, I've just been kind of rolling it over in my mind. 
I'm stuck on the King Lear thing. And I don't know. I, I, I've been trying to think about appropriate Shakespeare references, and I haven't read them all, particularly the histories. So I, I'm not... I could be missing something, but I got to tell you, I think the best one, and it's not that great because it's just Khan. There's there's nobody attached here, but I mean, he's Prospero more than anything else. I mean, I would, you know, the 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 marooned wizard, right? I mean, this, right. is, this is the closest. There's no Caliban or uh, Miranda. Miranda. Yeah. And so I'm happy with that, though. I think that's a much better than King Lear, but I'm trying to think about what is Kirk? Kirk's not King Lear. Uh, and and so there's not anything really great in terms of aging. I, I Again, that's why I say the histories. I don't know if Henry VI really gets us anything that might be mappable onto this. I, I don't know. The relationship between Spock and, and Savick has more of a potential, but he doesn't do, Shakespeare doesn't do this kind of relationship. This is, this is, I'm sorry, this is a Ben Kenobi Luke Skywalker thing. Yeah. This is, this is the closest thing to Star Wars DNA, I think, that maybe you get in this movie. They don't play it up very well. They don't, I, I, he doesn't do a good job with it. There's, you know, this, this movie is very um, flat. And for as much motion as it does have, it's very thin. There's not a lot happening outside of the main conflict. Conflict. <laughs> they, um, he builds a lot of things that could have happened, but then doesn't do anything with them. Right. And I, I don't know if they get played he, out in later movies. I don't know if Nimoy draws any of those threads through. Do you think that Savick as a character, and Savick was originally supposed to be male. Of they course. changed that in the script. Of course. Do you think Savick as a character is closer to who Spock was at the beginning of the series? No. 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 Because he's con- she's constantly asking him about human behavior, and he's explaining it to her, and she says, well, that's not logical. I'm just curious. Well, I see what you're getting at. I don't, I don't, I don't see it in the movie, but that could be a lack of character development. Fair. And that's fair. Like I said, there's a lot about this character that ended up on the cutting room floor, I think. Mm-hmm. But overall, what do you think about Savick? And we did watch the director's cut. Right. We we did watch that. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we're missing anything. I'm not trying to say that he doesn't deserve credit for making a good film. I'm saying there are clearly things that did not happen that very well could have that would have made the film just as good or better. What do you think about Savick overall, this new character? But she's fine. I mean... I would not be upset to see more of her, but there's nothing to make me excited about her either, unless I'm a Kirstie Alley super fan, which I am not. I do love that she learns fast after she sees Kirk make up the regulation to trick Khan. Yes. She learns how to make up her own regulations to get what she wants out of Kirk. Like, regulation whatever number says that a commanding officer can't leave the ship unless accompanied by... Somebody who's armed or whatever. I mean, <laughs> while we're recasting minor roles from Star Trek and basing whole shows around them, I mean, if we're just throwing roles out to people and making whole shows, I'd, I'd, I'd watch this one. I mean, I'd say this knowing full well the what's coming later. I know mm-hmm. full well. But yeah, I'd watch a show about a lady captain. A lady captain. Yeah, yeah, lady captain. Yeah. Lady yeah, captain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spock also dies at the end of this film. We have to talk about Spock's feel like death. We feel like we buried the lead. We buried the lead here. Except you mentioned it at the beginning, but then we didn't talk about it. Right. right. So this is a very it's famous... Bad student writing. <laughs> it's a very famous death scene, right, in which Khan... Which, by the way, Kirk and Khan never appear in the same room in this film. They're on opposite ships. Like, that is a very essential part of their dynamic here. Right. But Khan disables part of the Enterprise... They and then and then sets off the Genesis device and they can't get out in time because they can't get to the speed that they need to in order to get away from this thing that's going to obliterate them. So Spock, after Vulcan net pinching McCoy, who's being real stubborn about letting him sacrifice himself, 
sacrifices breaking news, himself. The sun came up today. <laughs> sacrifices himself by going into this irradiated area and fixing the things so they can get away. And then Kirk comes down to say goodbye. It's a very sad scene. It gets me every time. It's wonderful acting by the two of them. And I think one of the best lines is when he refers to the Kobayashi Maru, bringing it all the way back around, and says, what do you think of my solution, Captain? I know you have no emotional ties to these characters. Did this shred any kind of emotion from your heart? I think Spock would be proud of me for my non-emotional reaction. I mean... I know what I know he's not going to stay dead so why would I be upset by it? I do remember being like, "Oh, that's sad." The first time I saw the movie, and I knew then he wasn't going to be really dead either. But I mean, you know, so yeah, I, I it doesn't really hit me on a repeat viewing, but that's okay. Still good. Yeah, I and then we get the Tale of Two Cities reference. It's Kirk says it's a far better thing I go I go to do now. It's a far better place I go to to now that's supposed to bring us all the way back around on tale of two cities as well i don't have a lot to say about mccoy besides the fact that he's a grumpy he's just his old grumpy self for somebody that grumpy he always makes the room better for being in it and that is the energy i would like to one day bring into the world my favorite is when kirk and savik are arguing about the kobe ashi maru on the elevator and then when it gets to his destination mccoy's standing there and he's like who's holding up the elevator yep Again, the energy I want to manifest is, into this world. That yeah. is just perfect, perfect energy. So the thing about Spock's death, originally there was no teaser at the end of it. Although if you're paying attention to where they shoot the casket, they've told you how he's going to come back. Yeah, right? I, didn't, I didn't get that. Anyway. It was there. I they, just didn't get it. But they didn't have the teaser or the funeral at the end of the mm. of the of the film, and fans did not react well to the test footage of this film of Spock's death and the darkness of the original ending. They even sent Leonard Nimoy death threats. Like, I mean, this feels stupid, right? At the end of Empire, you at least get you get the hopeful musical note from John Williams that last cue. And and the last image, like yeah, they've they're kind of broken and they lost people, but hopeful. Uh, so they added the more uplifting tease of his return at the end of the film, which Nimoy didn't know about until the premiere. I mean, the tease being his voiceover at the end, and then the scene of the casket in the middle of the woods with the fogs around oh, yeah, it. That's yeah. like the last image of the film, which they filmed in like San Francisco, like in a random park because they were short on time. Right. Anyway. I'm glad you brought up Empire because this film has real Empire vibes for me. So uh, also, I think it's funny, the, the the politics between studios about space movies. This film originally was supposed to be Vengeance of Khan, but because Lucasfilm had their upcoming Star Wars title, Revenge of the Jedi, Paramount, as a gesture of good faith, changed it to The Wrath of Khan, which then was completely undermined because Lucas changed the third film to the return of the Jedi instead of revenge of the Jedi. Don't you find it a little ironic that they changed? I don't know this for sure. I'm, I'm speculating, but it, don't you find it a little ironic that they changed the title from revenge to return because the Jedi are a peaceful people when really the entire a, the entire series would be better if they weren't (laughs) right. Like, you know, if Anakin could have just, you know, like not had the bone on the DL, it would have been fine. Right. And B, Spock is the actual version of this that you're looking for. Right. I think Wrath of Khan is a better title. It is a better title. Right. Also speaking of Jedi, the SETI eels, which are used to mind control, Chekhov, which I think Walter Koenig, remember his complaint about the first movie, how he didn't have enough to do? I think this was in response to that, him getting like a separate storyline. He got hawk-eyed in this movie. He got hawk-eyed. So he gets a steady eel put in his in his head. Those eels were designed by Ken Ralston, who did the creature effects for Jedi. So mm-hmm. there, there's some of that Star Wars, Star Trek stuff coming on. Sulu and Uhura. We don't really see a lot of them, no. but they're doing good work in the background. Oh, yeah. Like, I wish there was more of them. Solid. But they all look good. Yeah. What did you think about Scotty and his nephew's storyline? His nephew dies in this That's film. So... Nah, it was stupid. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, like, okay, 
The door this, opens and Scotty's well, carrying no, the maimed is, body of his yeah, nephew. But but this is like the worst kind of storytelling, right? Like I care about Scotty. Scotty cares about his nephew. Why? Because he's his nephew. The nephew dies. Scotty's sad. I get that. I care about Scotty, so I'm sad. That's not how it works. You make me care about the character. Well, he's just supposed to be like a fresh-faced young recruit. They space-fridged him. They space-fridged him. I like how McCoy implies that death is not a normal occurrence because he's kind of shaken by it. And he says, I know sometimes doctors lose patients, but... Right. You know, in this utopia where medicine, medical technology has advanced, it's not like a common thing, except for in these situations. Nearing the end here, the other thread that we get that is important in this movie and will be important in the next movie is, of course, the creators of the Genesis Project, Dr. Carol Marcus and her son, David, who is immediately revealed to be Kirk's son, even though David doesn't know that at the beginning. What do you think about... A, Kirk sleeping with a scientist, which doesn't seem to be his usual type, besides Spock, obviously. Any port in the storm. (laughs) A hot scientist. And B, what did you think about Kirk's son's storyline, which also has a lot to do with age? This is another thing that I don't care about because they haven't given me a reason to care. You didn't like the end where he comes to comfort Kirk and he reveals that he knows that he's his son? I mean, it's fine. It's 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 fine. And that's really all there is to it. Again, it's like the Scotty's nephew thing. It's like what I've been saying all along. This could have been something I cared about, but you're not going to get me there. Like, I'm not going to fall for your games. Just because I like Kirk doesn't mean I'm going to be invested in this. You still got to do show your work. Gotcha. Gotcha. Although he does look like Kirk. Gross. I also enjoy that he calls, what does he say to Carol at the beginning? He's like, like, I'm afraid it'll fall into the wrong hands like that overgrown Boy Scout you used to hang out with. (laughs) I've heard Kirk described as a lot of things. I'm not sure Boy Scout is actually accurate. Final thoughts on this film? It was good. I think talking through it the way we did, I I think it reveals how it could have been better in a lot of ways, but I, I think it's genuinely good. It obviously does not suffer for a comparison to the first movie. You know, like competence would have made this movie good compared to the first one. But it's a good story. You don't even I mean, I didn't even know it was a callback the first time I saw it. It works. Even so, it's a testament to it being a good movie. It could have been much better, but that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Still good. Next up on Sam Watches Star Trek, Leonard Nimoy's directorial debut in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. Interestingly enough, going back to the whole thing about names of this second movie, originally Nicholas Meyer wanted to call this movie Star Trek II, The Undiscovered Country, which is a Shakespeare reference to Hamlet. That got nixed in favor of The Wrath of Khan when it became a more Khan-centric film. Makes sense. The franchise then is given to Nimoy for two episodes and then Shatner for a film. And then it gets given back to Nicholas Meyer for Star Trek episode six, which he then calls the undiscovered country. So that's just something to kind of look forward to. All right. That's all for this week. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And you can find Sam at Sam underscore Morris nine. Until next time. Live long and prosper.